Hey, it's Bob Stoffer. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Oilers Now ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. Weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. Well, Marty, thank you for joining us on Touchback Safety's Legend Series. Um, and you are a legend. And when you think of uh, what you accomplished in the National Hockey League, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that will say you were amongst one of the most, you know, feared and toughest players in NHL history. You kind of look back at your NHL career at times and, and shake your head a bit just in terms of, uh, you know, how great a run it was for you? Well, you know, it's really funny, Bob, because I think that I, I tried to strive every day to be better. And every day, especially early on in the career, you never really got comfortable with where you were at. Because, A, at the start, I just wanted to make the league. Um, I was my first two seasons in a really bad team in Pittsburgh that was a bit of a graveyard for young players, uh, Kevin McClellan included. Um, and then I got to Edmonton. I walked in that locker room, and you don't really know if you're even going to make the hockey team. Um, but I was really given an opportunity to grow. But yet still there was that friendly competition in that Edmonton locker room. There was, there was a desire to strive to get ahead. Um, there's a, there was a desire to be, to be a bigger impact, to do more, to be a bigger part of a team, but you needed to be better individually. Um, and then when I got traded to LA, my role changed considerably because we needed more from me. Um, and it was, you know, I was constantly trying to be better and I'm going to be honest too, that over the course of my career, I was, I was proud of the fact that I played a lot of minutes. I was proud of the fact that I was in situations penalty kill power play but I would still constantly hear about the fact that I was just a fighter um, because that was kind of where some people could would focus on so I think that I was striving to always be better and the 17 years just kind of blew past and it was just it was it was a competition and you know I'd have people say well where do you go in the summertime where do you travel I'm like well I'm I'm, I'm getting healthy and I'm training because I, I want to get ready for September. So there was such a focus. So I, the, the career was was really, really fun. I really, truly loved it. I, I loved getting on the ice. I loved being on the ice with my teammates and playing and competing. And it went so fast. I don't know if I really had an opportunity to step back and truly enjoy it while I was playing. And I have a real strong level of satisfaction now of, of the fact, really, Bob, that I think that I gave my best, and I'm satisfied with my effort and content with my career. We're joined by Marty McSorley, Bob Stoffer with you. Legends of the Game series here on Oilers Now for Touchback Safety. So, Marty, for Oilers fans, the first sort of glimpse of you was with Pittsburgh, but it was with Mark Messier. And you and Mark battled over the years, and of course you had tremendous respect for each other. But do you remember as a member of Pittsburgh playing that ridiculously gifted Edmonton team and getting into it with the uh, with Mark Messier? Well, you know what's crazy is people said, when did you get traded to Edmonton? 
you know, and I got traded in the summer after my second season in the, in the pros. And I said, no, it was probably a year and a half earlier. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, it was coming into Edmonton and playing and just being a 20 year old kid, trying to, trying to survive in the league, being the tough guy for my team and really not having much help. And, you know, you have a couple battles with Mark, you know, I went and stood right at his door, the, the door of the penalty box waiting for him to come out for the second fight. <laughs> and uh, Patty Conacher said it best. He said, Slats came into the back room, and Patty was riding the bike after the game. He was with the Oilers, and obviously I'm a 20-year-old kid playing in Pittsburgh. And Slats is walking around going, who does that kid think he is? He turned to Patty and says, I'm going to get him. And uh, Patty told me that years later. So you never know where you make an impact. And I got traded to the Oilers. Not a, not on the day that I was traded. I think I was traded a year and a half earlier. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So you come to Edmonton. The team has already won a couple cups by that point, right? Like, you know, they're a pretty good team. And what it could have should have with 85, 86. Um, we'll get to the playoffs in, in, in a second. But what was it like, you, you know, and I've talked a bit over the years to Craig Simpson about this because he made the adjustment a couple of years later. But just getting used to the pace and practice and how much better you got, Marty, as a player, just practicing with that pantheon of Oilers stars, of course, led by Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier. You know, I'm a huge believer in goal setting, and, and I think that especially young players, you show them where they need to get to. Um, you make them aware of it. And, you know, I really didn't know where I wanted to get to or where I needed to get to as a player in the NHL until you step on the ice and practice. I mean, I was a... Uh, you know, a 20-year-old kid watching my, my buddy, Kevin McClellan, who I was in Pittsburgh with my first year for half the season before he got traded, win a Stanley Cup with that team, and you see how talented that team is. Then the next year, you see them win again. And then you get traded there, and you're and really, it's daunting. It's like, how am I going to make this hockey team? And, and But the ability to practice there, I think that Glenn Sather, in a sense, was cheering for me. I know the guys in that locker room, it was really, really unusual, and it was really, really special because everybody cheered for everybody. Nobody was worried about their own job because I think they were comfortable with where they were at and who they were uh, as a player. That if you, if you had a new guy get a goal or get some power play time, everybody was really happy for them. So I took that into practice, and, and sometimes Glenn would practice me with Mark Messier's line. Next game I might play with Kruselinski or Mac T., and then I'd go back and practice with Mark's line. What a great opportunity for me to grow. It was like a fantasy camp hockey school for me because I was a fan of the game and fan of those guys. And then I became a bigger fan because I got to meet them as people. So, Marty, I was uh, 19 turning 20 in 85, 86. And it's my favorite era. Look, I'm an Edmonton <laughs> guy. It was high-scoring hockey. It was a I, You know what? In men's league, I was an aggressive guy who liked to, you know, it could score a little, but also got a little nasty. We'd be remiss without talking about what a. I, I think of that last regular season game in Calgary that year, and you know, you were you you were out there, and a, you know, you guys had uh, Smeko got moved that year, but you guys had you had some real tough tough guys on. It, it just it was. And did you get measured a bit physically against Calgary? Was that where everybody knew they had to step up and be prepared to to drop the flippers and let it fly? Well, it was it was difficult because it was a little different, I think, from from my Kevin McCall and myself and and our lineup from the Calgary lineup because Calgary wanted to make it a muck and grind game. We wanted the game to go along nice and pretty. So we didn't want to disrupt the game. 
but we certainly didn't want our guys to get taken advantage of. And there's the hard part for us. How do you go out and really express yourself physically when you're not trying to change the game? Because we didn't want Yari and Wayne and those guys to get into a punch up, right? Yeah. Um, so it was. It was those games were really hard because you were you were hesitant about starting anything, but yet you wanted to. You really wanted to let everybody know not to do anything. Um, and Calgary had a number of guys that would instigate and like Joel Otto and Poplinski playing against Mess and Andy. It was constant harassment. Right. And it really was. Um, you know, Paul Baxter and those guys that wouldn't fight anybody, but yet they would want to spear guys and stick guys. And it was, it was really difficult, uh, to, to answer those things with Calgary because there really wasn't that much of a stand up fight, uh, uh, as much as I would personally have liked. Yeah. You mentioned Paul Baxter. I mean, I remember the time he sucker punched Ben Wilson with, and he had a good left hand. He had a sneaky left and Wilson pulled himself up off the mat and beat the living snot out of, and Baxter stopped fighting at the end of, you know, just same thing with Rick, Rick Tockett, right? Rick Tockett got him and separated him from the pile, but he was a dirty, mean-spirited player. 85-86, Marty, I've talked a lot over the years with, you know, players of the Oilers that were involved in that game seven. I think it speaks volumes about the character you guys had in the room. You know, the puck, Steve Smith, you know, accidental play, Grant Fuhr said, I should have had that one. That's Grant Fuhr for you. But you guys had like 10 minutes left in that game. And to this day, I've never heard anybody say, you know, definitely said woulda, coulda, shoulda. We easily could have come back. Do you think that helped fuel the team uh, moving forward? And did it also speak volumes of the sort of character you guys had in your room at that time? Well, I really do think it was a gut check for a lot of guys there from the standpoint that they'd, you know, the team had won two Stanley Cups and obviously I was new, but watching and part of it. And, you know, obviously it's really unfair to Steve Smith because so many people in Edmonton define that as his career here. And he had a really good career. Um, and, you know, when you're three, three with 10 minutes to go in game seven, there's a lot of hockey been played to get yep. to that point that, have, you know, mistakes and great plays and different things. So there's a lot of, you know, I mean, to say that that's the one defining moment, I don't know if I accept that at all. Um, and if you see those last 10 minutes, Bob, oh, my God, the pace that we played at yep. and the opportunities we had, guys like Randy Gregg and the other teams crease, uh, it was it was. Re- I, I went back and watched it not that many years ago, and what an unbelievable pace. How we didn't score was a miracle. and it, But yet the team did make a gut check, and we knew that, you know, we can't get, complacent we can't get uh we can't take for granted what we had and i think it did it drew everybody closer together and in 87 glenn sater walked out at the start of the season and he said okay we're going to have a little carrot for this season um this is what i'll get you guys if you guys break the record for most wins ever in the nhl season i mean that was that's kind of the goal setting to start the next year um so and if you remember too we went and played the montreal Canadiens, who won the stanley cup Right in training camp in Ottawa, in yep. a great big game, and you killed them. You you smoked them. Put on. You smoked them. Yeah, and we we smoked them. We actually skated them. I think we skated them into the ice. Right. It was night and day. What I remember about eighty six, eighty seven, Marty, was Game Five against Philadelphia. Marty McSorley scores two goals, and the Edmonton Oilers are up three one. And you're probably thinking at the end of the second period, into the intermission, in the dressing room, I'm going to win the Stanley Cup. First of all, do you remember the two goals? 
Uh, well, I do. The one, the one was basically it was a shot from the blue line that, you know, I was up at the top of the circle, so it was it was a tip, but it was it was almost one where I, I didn't move much to get to to make the tip, and it went in, and it was so. I'm not going to say it was fluky, but it wasn't it wasn't that well planned. The first, the, and but the first goal was just doing what I I didn't do. Wayne was still on the ice, and I crashed the net, and there was a rebound there, and and I wanted to be hard on Hextall. I wanted to be hard on the Philly defense. Um, and it, it went in, but I, I was just, I wasn't thinking, oh boy, we're going to win the Stanley cup because you're so caught up in the moment. You're so looking forward to every, to, to every shift. You know, I always have the, the mindset, Bob, that no moment is insignificant and every moment can be the difference. Um, and so I really was playing the moment. Um, I never, I never really thought of the Stanley cup until two games later. And that's where we'll pick up. It is Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final back at Edmonton, May 31st, 1987. Marty, I was watching that game in Clearwater, B.C. tree planting, so it, it left an indelible impression <laughs> in my mind. It was a Sunday, so we had to go to the bar to watch it. Uh, but when I, when I, you know, when Glenn Anderson puts that puck in and you guys go, as good as Hextall was, you know, it just, just you could just sense that it was your time. And it was going to get done. Now, what did it mean for you to watch, to hoist that cup? And the other thing is, the story that's out there is, um, you know, the moment you shared with your father as well. Well, it, it was when, when Andy scored. And I mean, Andy and Yari scored so many big goals for that hockey team. It was crazy. Um, you know, almost every goal Andy scored was a big goal and a big moment. Um when he scored that goal at that moment, I knew we were going to win. And what was great for me is we went down to three lines, and the pace of that game was really, really awesome. And so we were three lines, and they put our line together of MACT, Yaroslav Puzar, and myself, and we were just rolling the lines. And it was I was having so much fun. I just remember standing up on the bench, turning around, looking at slats, and going. And it was, it was awesome to be in that environment, in that stage. And we, we really – I really felt that it was almost like I felt like we were going to score goals, uh, but Philly was was chippy and productive. And but when Andy scored, I knew at that point we were going to win. But until there was about 25 seconds left, I'm on the bench, and you're into the game. And Sparky Kolchiski, the trainer, comes to me and goes, "Give me your gloves and your helmet." I look at him like, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "Duh!" Points up to the clock, and there's 25 seconds left in the game, and that's when it dawned on me. That's when it was like, oh, my God, it's really going to happen because of all the work and everything you put into it and the focus. And then you know, I got on the ice and I was almost lost. And, you know, it, it, it's something you've dreamed about and you've seen so many great players from John Beliveau to you know, Larry Robinson to different guys carrying the cup around. Um, and I'm out on the ice and we've just won the cup. And my dad couldn't sit in the stands. He was too nervous. He'd walk around underneath the stands. And all the security guards were great with him, and they just kind of and he would poke his head out at different times by where the Zamboni was because he he was too nervous. So when we won the cup and they opened the door and they rolled out the red carpet, there was my dad. And, you know, I brought him out on the ice and gave him a big hug, and I, I very vividly remember saying to him, "We got our name on the Stanley Cup," and it was it was almost it was just bigger than life. It was unbelievable, and I, you know the guys in that locker room. And, the, you know, people in Edmonton gave me that opportunity, and I'm forever grateful. Marty McSorley joining us on Oilers Now. Legend series for touchback 
safety. So, Marty, uh, 1988, the Calgary Flames finished ahead of the Edmonton Oilers in the standings. Wayne scores that goal in game number two, arguably maybe the greatest goal Wayne Gretzky ever scored. One of the moments I remember in that series, you're going to laugh. This is when I loved you. Uh, You made it count with Mike Bullard. You, you got all of them. You got, you got, and this, this, this is where the game's different, you know, because today, oh man. But anyhow, uh, you took a, you took a high hit and as you went skating by the Calgary bench, they were completing a change and, uh, uh, Mike's voice went up a couple octaves. So <laughs> yeah. all part of the gamesmanship. Yeah, no, that wasn't, uh, all part of the gamesmanship. I like to think that most of the times uh, Bob, I like to think that most of the times when I'm being aggressive, yeah, um, it's it's something that I think is thought through, and you're you know sometimes you're willing to accept a three or four game suspension for the impact that it's going to make and the the room it's going to give my my teammates. That was not one that I thought through. Okay, um, mind you, I didn't think that the I didn't think the referee would see it because I thought I knew the puck was up the ice, right? Uh, because I had passed the puck to Charlie Huddy. And Gary Roberts put his his hip right between my shoulder blades and drove me headfirst into the boards. And I looked at Andy, and Andy just kind of smiled and shook his head. And I was I was you know I couldn't catch my breath, and I'm coming off. And yes, I spear bullard, um, and they, he's laying there. They carry him off on a stretcher. We scored on the play, and I assisted on the play. Yeah. And I I remember going into the locker room, and I'm looking up at the TV monitor, and they're showing all the angles, and I'm like, oh, boy, <laughs> that's not good. Um, and they gave me a five-minute major, and but we ended up winning that game, what, 8-2. to two. So Smoked after them. that goal, yeah. Calgary just never they, – they, I don't know. It was funny. It was such a close series, and, and they didn't answer at all. And it was – I was because they had a ton of character guys on that team. They had, they had built a great team, you know, to beat the Edmonton Oilers, but they were good enough then at that point to beat everybody. And it was it was interesting to see how there was no reaction after that. Um, I played the next game against Calgary, and again we beat them eight two. But there was really no pushback. It was it was really interesting from that that moment forward that I I just I found you know. You know, as to an aggressive move uh, episode, what kind of an impact it can have? I remember Messier flattening Perry Berezin, like he just destroyed him. And the first flame player that was there was Lanny McDonald. And I'm thinking, as tough as Lanny is, that's you might want somebody else in there. Um, Boston, <laughs> Boston in '88, the night the lights went out. What were you guys thinking? You know what we we felt so good about ourselves because the first two games in Edmonton, they had 14 shots the first game and 12 the next because right. we kind of revamped the team because cough cough didn't come come to training camp and then they eventually made the trade and got Simmer and yep. Jeff Cortnell and uh, you know uh, and then we got Billy Ranford a little uh, you know that same year and you know I mean what great play great players what uh, you, you know when you trade a star a lot of times you don't get stars back but we got great players back. Um, and we, we were so confident because we had six very big defensemen. Kevin Lowe was our smallest defenseman. And, you know, all the guys were 225, 230, 235 in, in 1988. Um, and so we were, we were a bit of a different team. Teams couldn't get into our zone. They couldn't get to the front of our net. Um, so in Boston, we felt like we were, we were going to, we were going to beat them. That it was just, it was a matter of our guys just scoring enough goals and, you know, Fierzy shutting the door. 
Um, when the lights went out, it was really kind of eerie because the Boston Gardens is so famous. You know, I'm a huge Bobby Orr fan growing up. Yeah, I loved playing in the gardens. You know what's the old building? We're sitting in the locker room with the emergency lights on, and one of our guys stands up on the bench and looks out these small windows in the locker room, and the Boston players are getting in their cars, leaving. They had yet to tell us that the game was canceled. Wow. Or over. So... Uh, so then at that point, Slats went out and said, hey, listen, the Bruins players are leaving, and that's when the game was canceled. But we, it was really eerie. And, you know, it's, I mean, some of the moments like that are what make the NHL special. You know, the, the, the history of the game and moving forward, the old Boston Gardens, the lights going out and Stanley Cup finals. So when people bring it up, I'm like, no, I was there. I, I was on the ice playing. Uh, you come back to Edmonton. You blow them out. I think it was 6-3 final score, but you were up. You might have even had the, the, I'm pretty sure you got Europe 6-2. Um, I was up in a place called Steen River, Alberta that year, and <laughs> which is right up near Northwest Territories, Marty, and um, right. watching it, and uh, Wayne gets the group together for a team photo on the ice. Because before then, you know, fans would jump on the ice if it was a home team victory in the Stanley Cup final, all that stuff. But you guys had, it, it, I mean, I'm sure you have that photo. And in the moment, you're probably thinking this is the last time this team will. But given the significance of what occurred that summer, it turned out to be quite, uh, you know, quite a, a great move by the great one who's been a great supporter of yours over the years. May I add, as you know, uh, just to be, uh, do, you, do you have a, do you have that '88 photo kicking around? And did you think that that was going to be? I, the... I do, I, I, I do, and I, I remember when Wayne says, "Come on, everybody, let's get together," and he wanted to do it right on the ice, and. And I think that I, I can't say I, what he was thinking, but it did kind of incorporate everybody in the building and it kind of incorporated there's a Stanley Cup picture with everybody. It's not a, an empty building and everybody shows up two days later, you have a picture with a cup. It's everybody, trainers, team doctors, everybody in a, in a kind of a, just a jovial mood, you know, hugging each other and what have you in the picture. And it, you see teams, every, every team has, has done it moving forward. Also, look at Wayne's haircut. Wayne showed up for that game. He'd cut all his hair off, and he was really clean cut. Um, because to him, winning the Stanley Cup was... You know, the year before, we played Philly in Game 7. Wayne had said, yeah, after the morning skate, we all had our playoff beards. After the morning skate, Wayne said, everybody shave your beards off. We're going to look good winning the Stanley Cup. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, then in 88, he had. I remember looking at him for the game, and he had a really... Uh, a really close haircut really looked really proper and, and yeah. looked great. And because he, he basically exuded the fact we're going to win tonight guys, and we're going to have our picture taken. And this is going to go down in history. We are joined by Marty McSorley. So Marty, where were you when you got traded to LA? I was in the biggest, probably the biggest hockey event of the summer Bob Cole, the great Bob Cole, had a charity event out in St. John's, Newfoundland. And Kevin Lowe and I went for a run. We went up to a, for a run up to the point. And everybody in the hockey world was there, from Red Story to referees to players from all over the league. And Bob Cole had gone all out to raise money uh, for that in that event. And when Kevin and I came back, Don Kohersky came running out of the uh, hotel, and he came to me and said, Wayne Gretzky's been traded. And I'm like, not a chance. No way. They can't do that. And he goes, yeah. And Kevin and I kind of looked at each other and it was just, we're just quiet. And 
I go up to my room and I'm pacing around. And I'm thinking about it. And I said, hell with that. I said, I'm going to call slaps. And I said, you can't break apart the best team in history. You can't. You know, we had lost Paul Coffey and then uh, Andy Moog. Yeah. Uh, we didn't sign Rail Richland or Kent Nielsen, who had played with us in 87, who were marvelous. Um, and so I said, I called Mike Barnett, my agent, who's also Wayne's agent. And I said, I'm going to call slats. And I said, I don't care. I'm, I know I'm a, you know, a third line player, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to make my voice heard. And but Mike Barnett said, sit down, big boy. I think you're in the trade. It's funny and because Mike Krusilniski, Mike Krusilniski says he was the key to the trade. He always does that, of course, with his self-deprecating <laughs> sense of humor. But Wayne insisted you were in that deal, as legend has it. It's a pretty good uh, well, endorsement. Think, yeah. But, Bob, i just be honest. I think if he could have got, you know, uh, Mess or, yes. uh, you know, Charlie Huddy or Grant Fuhrer, that he would, you know, that that would have happened. But I, th- I Wayne knew how big a responsibility he had. And his responsibility in L.A. was so much bigger than people can imagine. Um, the pull on him and, and just to grow the game. And it was so constant and he knew it better than anybody. And I, I witnessed it firsthand in LA and it was shocking how much of, how much, how much was put on his shoulders. And I think that he knew with me that it was somebody that could, would, would try to help him out, try to cover his backside, try to make sure that on the ice he's looked after and be a friend to him off the ice um, somebody that he can bounce things off of, um, somebody that he could trust. And I, I felt that, that I fit that bill, and I was, I was proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Um, the fact that he, he asked for me in the trade is great, um, but I, I do think that there was other players in Edmonton who had thought they could get they would have gone after, um, which would have made sense to me too. Uh, but it's, it, was, it, was, it was great. Uh, L.A. was an interesting time. Uh, great experience. Shed, shed some, Marty, shed some light on that because, I mean, I, I went in with the uh, U of A Golden Bears for the Western Forum freeze-out in like 1989-90, yes. and we ended up in the Forum Club. I was there. I watched it. Yeah. You know, the Forum Club was uh, the, the Forum Club was going on, and, I mean, you guys, you guys were like rock stars, weren't you? Well, I mean, we had, we, out, we outsold the Lakers that year for tickets, um, tickets became $1,500 a piece by the glass. Um, you know, everybody wanted to come and see Gretzky. Our, our exhibition schedule was a, a circus show around North America into Greensboro and down into Miami and into Houston and different places that didn't have franchises. Um, and they were coming to pay, pay to see Wayne Gretzky. Um, and you know, Wayne had to dress for every game and, um, you know, every, every time we went on the road, he felt a responsibility of putting on a show. I remember how upset he was at another star in the league who really didn't show up for a game that we were in their building playing because Wayne's like, how can he do that? You can't do that. Right. You, we're, we're growing the game. And he really took that responsibility and that challenge. Um, after games, he'd be like, I'm like, you want to go for a beer? He's like, no, I got to go for, for dinner with the CEO of Sony, or I've got to, I'm going for this, or I've got to go. Bruce is taking me to a dinner here. And there was, it was constant. And I know he was, you know, from a corporate side in LA, he was really helping out, but from a league wide, they, he de-regionalized the game. The game stopped being a cold weather sport. It, they, they, he proved it being successful in Los Angeles, and then you quickly saw Phoenix, Dallas, San Jose, Anaheim, Florida, I think because of Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall. Yeah. Um, 
the star power. And you, I mean, you had a, we'll get to the Oilers stuff, the, the Kings and the Oilers stuff in 89, 90. I mean, you guys played them all those years in a row in the playoffs. But uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to recall. Was it Con Air? You were you were uh, one of the uh, pilots in Con Air. I think you got whacked in the movie. Um, but uh, did you enjoy doing that kind of stuff? Well, Jerry Brookheimer, who's a producer in Hollywood, he's from Detroit, huge hockey fan. Uh, I used to sneak out in the summertime and sometimes play with with he and uh, Brian Turner owned Priority Records. David O'Connor, who was uh, one of the top agents at CAA, and different different people in Los Angeles. And so Jerry said, would you like to be in a movie? And I looked at him and I said, sure, love to. So he put me in Bad Boys. And, you know, being on the set with everybody and being in the movie was, was fun. I didn't feel like I had a ton of time to, to, to devote to the movie side because I, was, I didn't get away from being a hockey player. Right. And the scripts changed and they really should have cut me out of the movie. But Jerry put me into the movie Bad Boys. So in Con Air, he gave me a part that... They couldn't cut me out. John Malkovich had to get the gun from me and shot me. And because of the, the timing changes, I had to go to training camp anyways. I was about a week away from training camp. So they they, they killed me to get me to, uh, <laughs> to to get me off the set so I could go to training camp. <laughs> We're joined by Marty McSorley. Marty, I, I, look, I, like you know, I'm an Edmonton guy. I loved you when you were an oiler. I hated you when you were a king. And, until a specific event happened, and we'll get to that in a second. But, I mean, you guys come back. You beat the Oilers in 89. Your game changed because you needed to stay on the ice. You just couldn't take every fight, which was, I'm sure, hard for you. But, uh, you know, just a thought on coming back from 3-1 down and beating the Oilers uh, in 1989. That was probably one of the hardest series for me to play. And um, I remember being really hard on a few guys. Um you know, I spoke, Mark Mark had me to a golf tournament in New York, and, and the question came up, and his dad was sitting there. And I said, it, my dilemma there was, how do I be loyal to my teammates in Los Angeles? When you've got a guy like Mark, who was so good to me in Edmonton, who beat the drum for the Edmonton Oilers. At that point, with Wayne being gone, the team went as Mark Messier went. Um, and, you know, he's that type of a leader. And so how do I not go out and confront him challenge him and you know i was playing against him you know most every shift and that to me could have been one of the hardest series to play um it was gratifying to win because of bruce mcnall and the commitment the la kings and the the la people made to making that team better and to try to get ahead but it was you know boy it was it created some bad blood for me in edmonton um but I, i i couldn't change what i needed to do to be a player and that was that was that was tough. That's when you're you have to be a very good professional and look past all that. You played a lot of wing in Edmonton, but in LA you were playing mostly defense. But the Oilers loaded up in eighty nine ninety. They brought in Dave Brown, um, and I remember the game February twenty eighth nineteen ninety in LA. You uh, got into it with Mess behind the goal, uh, but then the Oilers brought it all game long and never stopped coming at you. I mean, at one point you were fighting, I think you were fighting Tickenen and Simpson at one stage in that game. I mean, that was a nasty, ugly, beautiful hockey game, wasn't it? Yeah, no, the Oilers, uh, they they got, they were sour. Uh, and what, what was interesting was, I kind of give Mark a push right at the start of the game and let him know that, you know, just, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here. But it wasn't, and Mark turned around and dropped his gloves right away. 
which really surprised me. Right. And so we had we had that fight, and it really upset all the Oilers. But I really think it was Mark's way of basically saying to his teammates, "I'm going to do whatever I need, whatever I need to do to help us win." And you know, Mark being the leader that he is, and it surprised me that he dropped his gloves. I mean, Tony Granato broke broke a, his cheekbone, I believe. Thomas Sandstrom broke his leg in that game. Um, you know, my my LA teammates, and it was it was nasty. It really was nasty, and it, it moved forward from there. Um, there was moments where you saw some things and I remember going out and grabbing a hold of tick cause tick would play against Gretz all the time. It'd just be a real pain. Yep. And I stuffed him into the net and really tried to get to him. And I, tick was my roommate when I was playing at Edmonton <laughs> on the road. So it was, it was, it was two teams really not want to give any ground and wanting to compete to the end. But yet they're, you know, the uh, tough, tough, it was tough. There were, the games were tough, but it was tough emotionally for me. Marty McSorley, who played 961 games in the NHL, 3,300 penalty minutes. He had some big offensive years in L.A. Oilers bring in Dave Brown. He, w- he was the lethal lefty, and I, I thought he was a cold-blooded assassin. Like, he could hurt you. Your most legendary fight is probably with Bob Probert. And I think you were with Pittsburgh, actually, at the time that you fought him. But just a thought, if, if you could compare and contrast those two guys, because I thought... During the stage where you were sort of the guy from, you know, like 85 until, um, you know, the mid to late 1990s, you know, Dave Brown and Bob Probert, I mean, those guys were as tough as there was out there. They're very different fighters. Um, uh, Dave Brown, if you made a mistake, he'd hurt people, especially as a lefty. If you started to reach around for that left, people ate it and they got hurt. Um, And he, he hurt a bunch of players. Uh, and because of, you know, when you're in a fight, you're in a fight. I mean, somebody's out there to hurt you. And so, you know, Dave Brown, Bob Probert is going to beat people up, whether they make a mistake or not. Um, Dave Brown, I didn't think was, was his, was as big and strong as Proby. Yep. And so personally for me, when I approached uh, Dave Brown, I feel like I could push him off his base, yep. um, and, and, and fight him that way. So it was, it was different, and I went about it differently. And I, you know, you think about these guys. But what I really loved about both of them was they did their job to the best of their ability. And they were stand-up guys. Yeah. There was there was there was no sneaky. There was nothing. You know, quick quick gloves off and get getting the first couple in. It was stand back and okay, we're gonna fight. And I I thought both of those guys did that job so honorable. And I really liked Brownie. I really did. And, yeah. You know, when Brownie started coaching in NHL, I was cheering for him. Um, but it was it was funny what what Glenn Saylor did, and he had Rod Phillips too. They were saying I was scared of Dave Brown, I wouldn't do this, and I had my coaches in L.A. saying under no circumstances do you fight Dave Brown because he's not going to play enough. And you guys had and Jay Miller. Puts me in a real. And you had Jay Miller. It, yeah, put, <laughs> yeah. Well, it puts me in a real dilemma. So um, I remember they were saying, "Oh, he's scared. He's not doing this because I was playing at Mark and, and Glenn Anderson." Um, and so the one game in Edmonton in the series is about game three or game four. I went out and I told Slats to send Dave Brown out to fight. And we had a fight. And then after that, he didn't, he didn't play Dave Brown the rest of the series. Because yeah. it was a non, it was a non, uh, it, it wasn't something they could kind of work and, and hit the angle uh, of, of me being scared or try, trying to create that image. Uh, they just moved on to something else. But it, I remember that distinctly. And it was unfortunate because Brownie's in the middle of that. Uh, Bob Probert, I mean, you had the great endurance, but was he the measuring stick for everybody around the league back then? Well, I don't know because I, the two, 
you know, my the fights that people talk about most of mine are are on the East Coast. Yeah. Happened in the East Coast because the the media is awakened in the offices. Right. Um, we have some unbelievable fights out here, and the guys that were out here in the West Coast, the tough guys, like Stu Grimson was out here for a long time. Obviously, Dave Brown, Proby, when the games were played on the West Coast, when because Detroit was in the Western Conference, nobody in the East saw them, so they weren't on the highlights. They weren't being shown. Right. If we, if if Dave Semenko would have played in New York or Toronto, he'd have been a god. Um, so I think Proby, God bless him, was really tough, and he had a he had a great impact on every game. Do I? Th- I, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, for the impact he made on every game that he played in. Um, but I do think that there's an East the East Coast media bias at that time in the NHL because there were some unbelievable fights from some really tough guys in the Western Western Conference. Was there a guy we haven't mentioned that could, I mean, really chuck him and you had to be, uh, I mean, hey, you fought Louie. Louie had a good left hand. He was, uh, he could tie you up. He had good endurance. Like, you had really good endurance. So did Louie. Uh, you had Gino Ojek was I'm in Vancouver. Sure Louis, I'm, Gino wasn't quite big enough, but he would fight anybody. And, I mean, a really likable guy. Yeah. Louie, I'm not sure Louie loved the job. Yeah. Um. He he went and did it, but I'm not sure he loved it. And you know, Louis was a big guy and a pretty good player. But there was guys like like Reed Simpson, Jim McKenzie was tough. Yeah, Ben Wilson. You know, when I first came uh, to yeah, Ben Wilson was, one was tough. Big mean sob, right? Yes, a really he was. mean guy. And so those guys existed. And over the course of 17 years, I touched base from Clark Gillies, you know, all the way to. Um, you know, when I'm 37 years old in Boston fighting young guys that, that come in because they're looking to come in and it's the right thing to do. Hey, Marty, I'm going to make you laugh here. Um, so I know you skated when you came back to the Oilers in 98, 99. We're jumping a bit ahead here. Marty McSorley joining us for Touchback Safety, our Legends Series. You skated at the University of Alberta. And I was at the 99 Nationals. They're in the coaches' things. I'm doing the play-by-play for the U of A, but uh, helping out in communications there. And Rob Dom's the head coach. And they're having a conversation about illegal sticks and the illegal stick call. And Rob Dom goes with in front of the other coaches. That is the worst way to try to win a hockey game. It is beneath us at this level to Mickey Mouse our way and call that. And, of course, Rob goes in as a team that's good enough to win. They ended up winning the championship that year. But a couple of the coaches from the smaller programs that had made it, well, I got to, you know, I got to use that in my arsenal to call that. You ever you ever look back at 1993 and and all those years later, right? But it it's because it's I've always said it on our shows that I've hosted. Coaches shouldn't call illegal stairs. Such a stupid call. Uh, what's your because t- you were you were the guy that kind of got victimized by it or guilty or were guilty of it? Well, there's more to it than that, though, Bob. The part that that like when they first grabbed my stick, I was like, are they kidding? Because I used the same pattern the whole year. And I didn't put a torch on it or whatever. Now it, it came from Christian, and Christian, the Christian brothers were awesome. I, I, Kent Nielsen got me onto Christian, and they they were really great. I loved their sticks, and they did a great job. And I and I'm responsible, I and mean, that's I'll tell school school kids that I you are responsible for your equipment, and it is a rule. Um, when they grabbed it, I was shocked, and then I'm like, fine, um, you know, let's let's go. Then you know. <laughs> But there was chaos in our locker room because they scored to tie the game up. I'm in the penalty box. We go in at the end of the game. We've got six guys in the stick room all trying to straighten their sticks. Wow. Luke Robitaille, Alex Zitnik, Thomas Sandstrom. We're, we're all in there with torches and stepping on them, whatever. And the, the general manager came in and said, it, 
they put a rule in that it, you can't call a stick in overtime because it makes too much of an impact on a game. And I thought, how stupid is that? And it was an old rule that they just hadn't changed. They've since changed it. They made it a bigger curve and different things right. for when goalies didn't have mass. Right. Um, and they put the rule in. So, but, but again, I'm responsible. But what I found out later is what really disturbed me. I've had three Montreal Canadiens players tell me that they pulled our whole stick rack into their locker room after the second period and measured everybody's stick. Come on. Come on. Yeah, so there was no risk factor. I mean, if they were wrong, there would have been a penalty. Yeah. You know, when you hear Guy Carboneau saying in the media that, oh, I was watching the sticks, or, you know, they're saying this and that. And when you found out that they pulled our stick rack into the locker room and there was players there measuring the sticks after the second period, that to me was like, you play all year long, and then and then they do that. It's you know you almost wow. I, I'm amazed that you're. I'm a, I'm amazed your trainers allow that to happen. Like that's that's crazy. And I'm well, allowed. There was a police officer on our bench. No, oh, wow. there was a police officer on our bench. So he's moved. Trainer from Montreal told the police officer to beat it. Wow, that's crazy stuff. So you know, yeah. So when you find out that later, you're like that. That's to me is really disappointing. Yeah. But, I do, like I said to kids, though, Bob, I, you are responsible for the gear you wear. All right. God, Gretz was sour. At, Gretz was sour at me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he was because he is always under scrutiny, so he makes sure that everything yeah. is spot on, right? Yeah. And the fact that my stick was over, he was. He looked at me as if, you know, you know better, <laughs> and uh, and he's right. He's right. All right, Mark. <laughs> Marty, uh, when you were in San Jose, so I'm working in the San Jose truck. Uh, Frank Alban, I believe, was producing those games at that time. And uh, they go, hey, you got to check this out. Bernie Nichols and Marty McSorley just got Glenn Sather's car in the parking lot over it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that? You guys like, you guys like whipped creamed it and toilet paper. Like, you got it all going on, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, windshield uh, under the, the all the doorknobs all over the car because you know Slats Slats took care of the vehicles he drove. They were always shiny clean, and you know he comes down, he parks in that spot, and you know Bernie. I said, Hey Bernie, you want to get Slats' vehicle? Let's do something. He's like, Absolutely. <laughs> so we go out there, and you know, because Slats Slats has a sense of humor. Slats, uh, you know, Slats will, um, you know, he, he'll get right in there with it. And so I, I think it was, it might have been after the game. Bernie had shaving cream in his pocket and I had shaving cream in my shoes. So I, whether, I don't think Slats came in, but I think he had Sparky come in and, and try to get us back. But uh, I, think, I think moments like that when you can tease the other coach or there's little things that are said and things that are done with players that are even playing against each other, uh, I think that's what makes the game great. And Bernie and I had a ton of respect for Slats, but it's still like none of his players, none of his players would ever do that. Right. But we had, we felt we we felt we could do that because we weren't playing for the Edmonton Oilers anymore. Well, he brought you back the next year, so obviously he wasn't that disappointed. Uh, Marty, just to wrap <laughs> up with, uh, I know you do a lot of uh, uh, charity work uh, with the uh, Oilers alumni. You're in and out of Alberta all the time. Uh, where do you spend most of your time these days? And uh, what do you got coming up here in the fall uh, in northern Alberta? Well, I'm coming into Wainwright on the 14th for an event in Wainwright with uh, with Theo. Okay. And, you know, we do a little bit of the Edmonton, Edmonton 
uh, Calgary back and forth a little bit. Jamie McCowan will be there, and it's, it's fun working with those guys. I have a lot of respect for them. And I get a chance to go into a lot of the towns in and around uh, Edmonton. I was just up in Slave Lake we, with the Hunter brothers, who were fantastic. Um, and, you know, we, we raised money up in Slave Lake and had a great time up there. Uh, got a little fishing in. I'm going to be in uh, uh, White Court on October 5th. Uh, so I, I, I have the opportunity to come up and, and do events and see the people and get into the communities. And I'll sneak into an Oiler game. I also sneak into some of the junior games. I've been in games in, in Lloyd Minister. I've been in games in Fort Mac. I've been in games in uh, Sherwood Park. So I, I really get a chance to come back into Alberta and be a part of the community and really, really enjoy it. Um, and I get the chance to see a lot of my old teammates. Fierzy and I are on our way up to Fort Mac right now. Uh, we're going up there in support of the First Nations. And it's, I, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of great people in Alberta that I still consider my friends. And uh, I look forward to it. I'm going to be at the home opener this year yep. uh, to see the, uh, see the Oilers play. And I'm excited for the season. I think that they've got a, a really great base uh, for the team. You know, they're up the middle with, uh, with Dreisaitl and McDavid, I think, is, is outstanding. And, you know, they've got some good young defensemen. I, I, they're coming. They're coming. So I, I really, really enjoy it. Um, that's where I'm at. i got two little kids, three little kids, sorry, 12, 10, and 8. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be involved with a team right now where I'm gone for 25 days a month. Um, so I'm doing a lot of charity events, a lot of large-scale corporate events. And uh, I get home and I get to be a dad. Awesome stuff. Hey, Marty, we appreciate your time. Uh, we'll uh, touch base down the road, okay? Bob, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer, Weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad.